Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning as we turn to your word that you might speak to us. Take from us every distraction and enable us, Father, to honour you by listening to your voice. We pray, Father, that this day you might take us up and give us that joy that comes from knowing the truth that you have revealed in this, your part of, this part of your word. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God warned the first man and woman, on the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. For a moment it seemed like such a small thing, taking up the opportunity to be grown up and mature, to decide right and wrong for themselves without reference to God. But when they ate fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it changed life forever, for all of us. The ugly, unrelenting reality of death entered the experience of every one of us. It had never been an idle threat, those words they'd heard from God himself. It was a loving and serious warning. But when they convinced themselves that someone else knew better, that in the end they knew better, that's when it began. That's when the vice-like grip of death was applied to each one of us. Every single person in our world, the strong and the weak, the wise and the foolish, the rich and the poor, the defiant atheist and the pious believer, the queen in her castle and the beggar on the street. And brothers and sisters, if the message we have to take to those walking down the streets of Newtown this morning or wherever you expect to be in the weeks, months and years ahead does not address this stark reality, then it's ultimately empty. Dress up your religion or philosophy with morality and the call for social justice or environmental responsibility, pursue moments of ecstatic rapture or healthy community life, but fail to address the issue of life and death, and at a funeral it will seem like your life has just been children playing in a sandpit. What do you have to say at a graveside or in a hospital room? Everything depends on how you deal with life and death. Which is why the Christian gospel is so good. Because it stares down the ugliness and pain of death with just three words. He is risen. The Christian gospel is thoroughly realistic about death. It's not gone from our world forever, not yet. The appalling, near-perfect record of death versus the human race is confirmed every minute of every day. But the resurrection of Jesus smashes the inevitability of death. Death does not win. Even at its ugliest, even in the midst of deep grief, death does not win. In the great vision at the beginning of the book of Revelation, the risen Lord Jesus said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
This morning we uh, arrive at the account of Jesus' resurrection in Matthew 27 and 28, and I hope you'll see the wonder of it. I hope you see how utterly extraordinary a thing it is. But I hope too that seeing will give way to speaking as we are encouraged to follow the example of the women who were the very first witnesses of the defeat of death. We have something worth saying in a world where death is an unavoidable reality. So if you haven't already, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 27 and we begin at verse 57. When it was evening, a rich man named Joseph from Arimathea, who had himself been discipled by Jesus, came to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate commanded it to be given. So Joseph, taking the body, wrapped it in clean linen and placed it in his new tomb, which he had carved in the rock. And having rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, he went away. But Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, seated opposite the tomb. The next day, which was after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, saying, Master, we remember that the deceiver said while he was living, after three days I will be raised. Therefore order the tomb be secured until the third day, lest his disciples come and steal it and say to the people, he's been raised from the dead and the last deceit will be greater than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, detail, go secure it as well as you know how. And those who went, who, and those there sent Sorry. Those went and secured the tomb, setting a guard and sealing the stone. After the Sabbath, early on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and approached the tomb and rolled the stone away and sat on it. And his appearance was as lightning and his clothes as white as wool. And the guards shook with fear and became as dead men. The angel said to the women, don't you be afraid. I know that you are seeking Jesus, the crucified one. He is not here, for he was raised just as he said. Come see the place where he was laid. Then quickly go and tell his disciples that he was raised from the dead and he's going before you into Galilee. You'll see him there. And leaving the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples when suddenly Jesus met them saying, Greetings. And they approached him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers that I am going into Galilee. There you will see me. When they had gone, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. And they gathered with the elders, and having taken, taken counsel, they gave a substantial amount of silver to the soldiers, saying, Say his disciples came by night and took his body while you were sleeping. And if this comes to the governor, we will persuade him and keep you safe. Taking the silver, they did as they were told, and this report has circulated among the Jews until this day. This part of Matthew's gospel plays out in four scenes. Two of them involve followers of Jesus and two of them opponents of Jesus. Two visits to the governor, two messages to take away from the tomb. Devotion, dread, delight and duplicity. The first scene is the burial of Jesus by Joseph of Arimathea. With help, John's account of these events will tell us, 
from Nicodemus. We don't often make much of the burial of Jesus, do we? Though you might have noticed that it does get a mention in the Apostles' Creed. He was crucified, dead, died and was buried. Why does the burial of Jesus matter? Even more importantly, it gets a mention in Paul's great list of the things that are of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Why is the burial one of the things of first importance? Why does it matter? Three simple things we need to notice. First, the physical body of Jesus matters. Jesus did not just dispose of his body after he made an atonement for our sins. It wasn't left to rot on the cross like so many others were who had been executed, left as a warning to others not to dare oppose the Romans. It wouldn't be picked away at over months by the birds and wild animals. Jesus' physical body matters. It's not something irrelevant to his saving of us. We have bodies, and so he had a body. He has saved all of us, including our bodies. The physical body of Jesus matters. Second thing to notice is that Jesus was fully and genuinely dead. There's something final about a burial. When the grave is covered with soil, or the coffin glides into the crematorium, there is a sense of finality. Placing Jesus' body in that tomb and rolling the stone across the entrance was meant to make clear that this is the end. There is no coming back from this. He wasn't just resting, he was gone. Life had left his body, it was final. The Heidelberg Catechism asked the question, Why was he also buried? And the answer? Thereby to prove that he was really dead. Just as Jesus' physical body matters, so does the empty tomb. It was the same body that was crucified that would be raised. It would be a full overturning of death in all its physicality. And the part the burial plays in all of that is to say he really did die. And thirdly, even in this, Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Jesus had been fulfilling the Old Testament right throughout his ministry. But here it is again. In the Song of the Suffering Servant in Isaiah 53, the prophet said this, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Not all the rich men in Matthew's gospel were like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Faced with the demands of discipleship, he walked away. But this rich man, this disciple, put his resources at Jesus' disposal. And as he did, the promises of God continued to be fulfilled. The burial of Jesus shows that His body matters, as indicated by the care and devotion given to it by Joseph. It shows he was fully and genuinely dead. 
When he rose from the grave, it would be a genuine victory over death, not simply a resuscitation or an elongation of his life. And it shows that even now, even when some may have concluded it was all over, finished, he was still fulfilling the words of the prophets. There is, you you might have noticed, not the slightest hint that Joseph believed Jesus would rise again from the dead. This was the way he could express his devotion by taking him down from the cross, wrapping his body, sealing the tomb. One last final act for Jesus. And then Joseph disappears from view. Did not wait around for what comes next. What did happen next would take him by surprise too. But before we come to what happened next, we cut away to the scene in the city. The quiet devotion of Joseph of Arimathea, watched in silence by the women sitting across from the tomb, stands in stark contrast to what was happening back in the city. You might have thought that the religious leaders would be triumphant. They had, after all, engineered Jesus' death during the festival and without a riot in Jerusalem. They'd eliminated the one who challenged them at every point, the one who represented the biggest single threat to their hold on religious authority, and they'd done it in a way that would have pronounced to every Jew who passed by that he was cursed by God. But they weren't triumphant. They were petrified. There was devotion at the tomb, but dread in the city. It was not over yet. He was still a threat to them. Of course, they did not believe he would be raised, as he'd said. They were concerned, however, to stop someone breaking into the tomb and perpetrating a hoax. They didn't for a moment think that somebody would break out of the tomb. So they sought the permission of Pilate to interfere, to post a guard and to seal the tomb, and to ensure that no one would tamper with the body and deceive the people. Pilate had been quite willing, or so it seems, to release the body of Jesus to Joseph. He was perhaps a little less excited about posting a guard outside a tomb. You've got your own guard detail, he seems to have said. Do your worst. Secure it the best way you know how. And that is just what they did. Nothing was going to get in there. And at this point, we move to the next scene, a day later. The centrepiece of the action in this passage takes place in the third scene. On the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, the women who had watched as Joseph and Nicodemus had placed Jesus' body with care and devotion, with reverence into that tomb, decided to return early in the morning. We're told to see the tomb. What did they expect to see? Up to this point, no one, not Joseph, not the chief priests and the Pharisees, not even Pilate, had expected Jesus to actually rise from the dead. His death was the end. He was buried now. It was over. There was a dirty great stone across the entrance to the tomb. And there is not the slightest sign that the women thought anything different. What happens when they arrive was not the resurrection itself. The resurrection itself is not seen and it's not described in any of the Gospels. When the angel descends and rolls the stone away, it's not to let Jesus out, but so that the witnesses may go in. The first great resurrection sign 
was the empty tomb that the angel invited the women to inspect. And the first great testimony to the resurrection was actually not given by either of the women, but by the angel. Did you notice what he said? Four things. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. They had every reason to be afraid. The seasoned guards posted at the tomb were scared stiff. They became as dead men. And that's an irony, isn't it? But the angel says to the women, don't you be afraid. The women will hear those words again in a minute from a very familiar voice. Secondly, he says, I know you're seeking Jesus, the crucified one. What's worth noticing here is that Jesus is referred to as the crucified one. Even though, as a minute later we'll make clear, Jesus has already risen from the dead, he is still referred to as the crucified one. The crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus are bound together. The cross of Jesus and the empty tomb belong together. One helps you understand the other. Here it's important to remember that the one they are seeking is not just the one who's risen, just as he said, but the crucified one who has risen, the one who bore the curse is the one who's broken through death and emerged triumphant. And thirdly, the statement that is at the very heart of this entire passage, these are, as one writer puts it, the most important words in the gospel. The angel said to the women, he is not here. He was raised, just as he said. He is not here. The tomb is empty. The angel will invite them to see for themselves it's the same body that was laid in the tomb that was raised from the dead. That's why the tomb's empty. His body was no longer in that tomb. His body had been raised. You see, the resurrection of Jesus was physical and historical, not just abstract or spiritual or ideal. It was not just part of him that was raised, but the whole of him. It was not that his influence continued on or that they sensed he was with them in some way. No, the very same body that was laid in the tomb was raised up. He is not here. He was raised just as he said. And the final thing flowed out from this. Since this has happened, since Jesus is no longer in the tomb, no longer dead but is risen and alive, go tell his disciples. This is not something to keep to yourselves. It's something to announce with a sense of urgency. The women, you might remember, had come to the tomb to see. They now left the tomb in order to tell. First the disciples and then others. Several decades ago now, a Bishop of Durham in the United Kingdom and the Archbishop of Perth in Australia, very much around the same time, both publicly denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus. They each went for a slightly different version of the spiritual resurrection idea. The disciples had a sense that Jesus was still with them, that his spirit was still guiding them. Bishop Jenkins in Durham suggested that to think otherwise was to turn the resurrection into a conjuring trick with bones. But the resurrection Matthew was talking about 
The same resurrection the other gospel writers and the apostles Peter and Paul spoke about was raising from a real death the resurrection that results in an empty tomb. He is not here. He was raised just as he said. And that's the message we have to take to the streets of Newtown and elsewhere. That's the message that confronts life and death as a reality in our world. Death did not win and it need not win because physically, bodily, not in part but in whole, Jesus was raised from the dead. And the women rushed off, eager to follow the angel's direction and go to the disciples, did you notice, with fear and great joy. But then they encountered Jesus himself. And so it's no longer just the empty tomb, but the empty tomb and the risen Jesus standing in front of them. It is a real resurrection. He was physically in front of them, all of him. He had real feet. One of the Marys grabbed hold of them. It was Jesus, the same Jesus they'd known prior to the crucifixion. And he gave them the same instructions they were given by the angel. Don't be afraid and go and tell. But there is one thing that's different. Did you notice? The angel had said, go and say to his disciples. Jesus said, go and say to my brothers. When we last met the disciples in this gospel, they had deserted Jesus and fled. Peter had denied him three times in the courtyard of the high priest. They would have every reason to believe that rebuke and a call to repentance would be the next word if they should ever hear a next word from Jesus. But the power of forgiveness is seen in how Jesus referred to them in that first encounter with the women. Go and tell my brothers. Devotion, dread, delight, and finally duplicity. The guards had every reason to believe they'd failed. They rushed to the chief priest to report what had happened. As Chrysostom put it, even with a seal and a stone and a guard, they were not able to hold him. The tomb was empty. He had risen. But the chief priests refused to believe it. Here is the hard-hearted reality that Jesus had spoken about when he finished the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone should rise from the dead. And so they bribed the guards and a long history of trying to explain away the resurrection begins. Could not possibly have happened. It was just a hallucination, perhaps a mass hallucination. We've misunderstood the apostles. They never meant the bones were anywhere but in a tomb somewhere in Palestine, but they sensed something of him lingered on, continued to influence them. He just passed out, and in the cool of the tomb, he recovered and moved the stone. And yeah. The women went to the wrong tomb. The disciples stole the body. The chief priests had been unable to prevent the resurrection. They were reduced instead to lying in order to try to stop people believing it. But none of that duplicity changed what had happened just hours before. Jesus, the crucified one, with the body that was crucified, was raised from the dead. 
and his resurrection in all its fullness is the guarantee of our own. That's the united testimony of the apostles who met the risen Jesus. And that's what we have to say to each other and the world. And it's something worth saying, isn't it? It's not frivolous or shallow or simply a pleasant distraction. Not in a world where death seems the ultimate reality. The Christian gospel is so good. It takes up the biggest of the big questions that impact every single one of us. And it stares down the ugliness and pain of death with just three words. He is risen. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we do thank you for the great hope of the resurrection that is anchored in the reality of what happened that day. Thank you for the empty tomb and the physical presence of Jesus, for the encouragement not to be afraid and for the encouragement to go and tell. So, Father, please help us not only to hear these words but to believe them and to do them. For Jesus' sake. Amen.